0: Welcome to the Hot Politics Lab,
1: end-of-the-year edition. I'm Gijs Schumacher, And I am Bert Bakker. Um, The Hot Politics Lab is a political psychology lab at the University of Amsterdam. And our mission is to use insights from political psychology to understand big themes in politics, like populism, polarization, and other important topics.
0: We're a team of free people. Me, Bert Bakker, and Matthijs Rodan, and a lot of other PhD students and postdocs and like minded people who visit our lab every week. We have open labs since the pandemic, and in this particular podcast, we want to give you an overview of the highlights that we've seen in our lab over the last year we will also throw in some of our own work because you know usually we don't really present that and we do think you know it's interesting of course it's our own work Um, if you want to listen to any of our podcasts uh, you can do so on youtube and on spotify now 2020 of course has been a super crazy year for all of us uh bert what do you think was the biggest change in this year for our lab
1: well obviously that um, that we don't see each other in person that much anymore and and actually that, that but the biggest, the biggest change in the lab is actually that we have we have opened up the lab. We've moved it online, and it's it's accessible for uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people from around the world. So, maybe a bit of history uh, when uh, when the Netherlands went into full lockdown in uh, early March. Uh, Gijs and I were talking on the phone and said, "Well, what should we do? Should we?" We had a, a series of speakers lined up for the rest of the spring. I think, well, you know should we just cancel and not have any activities anymore and this was kind of the default reaction at most of the uh, other sort of seminar series at the university and i think also at other universities and we said well maybe it's actually fun to try to to have an online uh, open uh, open lab and 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 invite speakers uh, from the from from the netherlands but also broader uh, to to come and give talks and also open up the lab for people from other places to participate and i think that's 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 been the big the biggest change we've we've made this year is that um, it's now a it's not a closed group of people that meets in a small room in the University of Amsterdam but it's actually a an online platform
0: yeah we've had people from the United States joining us from from the UK, Germany, uh, on average, we've had uh, 30 to 40 people uh, joining us on Friday afternoons, despite the major time differences.
1: Sometimes it's spe- specifically speakers from California. Um, yeah, and also I think you know, in our, how many people would show up in a normal lab session? 10, yeah, yeah. 15? So, you know, that's like 30, 40 is obviously for, for an average seminar, actually a, a, good, a good size. I've, I've spoken to a lot, lot emptier rooms in, in, other, <laughs> in, in various places, <laughs> including my own university. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, one of the major benefits is that, that we get to speak to people we normally don't interact with or, well... You know, once a year on this conference where we meet each other, but now, you know, big players in the field can just you know join our 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 meeting and and give feedback to our PhD students, and 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 that has been an awesome experience, I must say.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it's it. um, I think the first period we've we've reached out mostly to people that we knew a little bit. Or, or a little better in some, in some cases, but but it's also been interesting to see that that if we just invite people, most people that we wrote an email to that we didn't know, it's like hey, you know, we're a lab and interested in this and this, and would you like to come and speak? Most people are like sure, I can do this. Like, I think we have had very few people that say I can't make this, and also because I guess the cost of of a one-hour lab session are a lot less invasive for your private life you the rest of your activities then that you have even if you're in other places in the netherlands if you would have to come to the netherlands to amsterdam to our lab in amsterdam it costs you half an an afternoon quickly
0: yeah and and you don't need to fly it's good for your uh global uh, uh footprint your carbon footprint i mean and um it also it's it's much more an opportunity for people on, on much smaller budgets, also for for, for graduate students to uh, to interact with, um, uh, to see talks and to to give talks. We also have graduate Fridays, for example, where PhD students can give talks. Uh, but but what do you think are are the the I mean this almost sounds too
1: perfect to be true. <laughs> but what do you think are the are the downsides? Um. Yeah, I think obviously the big downside is that we cannot have drinks afterwards. Uh, but aside from that, um I think the, the biggest downside is that some of the informal networking, the, the informal conversations before the talk, after the talk, uh they are they are gone. So so it's a little cleaner in a sense. Somebody comes in, you meet five minutes before the uh before the session starts, you have a little chit-chat person gives a 20-30 minute talk, there are an X number of questions and then um, yeah, that, that's it. And, and I think this is especially for more junior researchers and also those affiliated in our lab who are like PhD students or master students, they miss out on some of the uh, these, these smaller interactions that, that could come up. Uh, in the in the corridor over coffee before the talk or after the talk, and we've been trying to facilitate this a little bit, and I think we've succeeded in the second half of the year uh, when we said, well, we or we invite people for from three to four uh, and in Amsterdam time, but. Uh, we also uh, especially for the graduate students in our lab we uh, offer them the opportunity to meet one-on-one or two-on-one after the talk online Uh, and I think that has helped to create a a bit more informal networking uh, mentoring opportunities for the graduate students Uh, and so yeah I think that's the for me seems to be the biggest downside at the moment, the the the, the, the that's the biggest risk. Like for, for for you and me this might be less a little less of an issue in the sense that you, you have a little bit of a network and, and you also know that maybe in two years you have the chance to talk to these people again. Mm-hmm. But if you're a second year PhD student that interaction might actually be really important at that moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. So do you see any other downsides?
0: I think uh well people have have said that 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 you know the online format might be more uh suited for some people than for for other people mm-hmm. and and that 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 creates also hierarchies um I'm not sure I'm not sure so sure about this argument though I think so for, I mean like clearly there are more extroverted people um But I think the the, the barrier uh, for uh, for an online presentation is much lower than the barrier for a um, conference presentation. Um, You do obviously miss out on say the uh, more um, chance uh, events, right, the chance events that you get to speak to uh, someone important in the field because you bump into each other in the elevator. Uh, the chance event of, of actually going to a panel you you weren't planning to go to and see something really interesting. I think. I mean, this has happened to me. Uh, I always lose my way in, uh, in, at the MPSA, uh, uh, Chicago, the Palmer House uh, uh, <laughs> Hotel. So uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a bit more. Uh, it needs more planning and more organization. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think I could. Uh, I think there's, for both online as well as offline, some people might enjoy giving these talks and the social parts of it a little more than others. I think there's also maybe people that are are more in the sort of regular speaker series. They get invited or they invite themselves. Um, I think what we've been doing is is actually trying to reach out to people we find interesting and no one has invited
0: himself or herself yet.
1: No, I don't think well, so. We're open to it <laughs> don't yeah. <be> shy. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah you're right yeah that there's this might be but but yeah i think i I do remember the first few times teaching online which were And also these first sort of seminar sessions we had in the lab, it felt a bit weird to talk to a screen. But nowadays I think it's perfectly normal to talk to a screen. And so you also get after a bit of time, it becomes a very normal session. I think one of the plus that we upsides that we didn't discuss is that in the format we use where we have the participants. Can ask questions, but they have to write it in the chats. We get less, we get much more focused yeah. questions and much less unfocused rants. So,
0: so for the people not regularly following us, uh, usually uh, participants can uh, can ask questions by writing them to us, and we read them aloud. Uh, but that that's not happening here. This is just us in a in a room full of Lego and uh, and a few beers. Um, so there are no participants now. Uh, but indeed, and and I wonder how this will. I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on on, on the one hand, maybe people do really want to uh, ask their question like with their voice and their face, and not just with their words. But if for one thing, it's been uh, it has been tr- we can ask we can cover a lot more questions because we simply spend a lot less time on posing them. So. Um, uh, uh, that, that's that been a benefit and I'm really curious how we'll actually practically do this once we you know, we we, we go out of semi-pseudo-intelligence lockdown as we call it here in the Netherlands uh, and, and, and go to a hybrid situation where some of us will be in a room together yeah.
1: yeah, maybe we have to force people to write down their questions on a card and then we read it out <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad idea <laughs> a, yeah. Yeah, We all know these persons at that those that should not be named in a podcast that no. give these long rants yes. or have this more yes. of a comment than a question. Yes. And we, we, that's been completely been removed in this yes. format.
0: It's exactly. Although I'm still curious about the one person that we're not going to name how... He or she, let's not uh, give any clues. Uh, will 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 behave in in this uh, in this this situation? I mean, th- I, I literally got a 30-minute uh, question. It was more like a, I don't know a sermon uh, in response to my presentation. My presentation was only 10 minutes, by the way. <laughs> um, and he or she has been to the lab once, but uh, I, I don't think there was a question. So. No, no. I think I think the format just didn't fit.
1: No, but in that sense. It does. I could also see that it maybe there's less of a barrier for junior people to speak up and ask a question if you can type it, rather than in a forty people seminar room, you have to stand up and you know that these and these famous professors are there. And technically, you can join us as anonymous attendees. Yeah, you're right. And,
0: <laughs> and we've had anonymous attendees, or maybe maybe it's one person or multiple. We don't know. It's it's the mystery of our show. Yeah.
1: So I think to summarize, I think I think the 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 big advantage for us has, has actually been that with with our external speaker series, we might have like twice a year have an external guest, and now we've had external guests almost almost weekly. Yeah. We've also had people from the University of Amsterdam, but a lot of external guests yeah. from all over the world, and it it has really I think enriched our seminar series a lot and but but so guys if you reflect on on this um, on on sort of the march till december period what are some of the things that 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 you remind us sort of talks that stood out or findings that you that you found like hey that's interesting
0: yeah let's talk about the speakers i think so i think the first meeting was the second or third week of march we all just went into lockdown uh things went pretty quickly uh, and and we had uh, we had a super interesting talk uh, by Michael bunk Peterson from Aarhus University uh, on anxious optimism, and uh, this is this is really this was a Corona talk, right? So this the, the first couple of talks were really also about our own anxieties about COVID and trying to um trying to get speakers to shed some light from the social sciences on how we should uh, um, yeah, how we should advise the government to uh, uh, to, to, to get into action and and, and, and Michael's uh, call for anxious optimism, it was really a call for government communication to on the one hand, make people anxious, right to, to make sure that they comply, Make sure that they're scared of covid and on the other hand give them a perspective so that's the optimism part give them a pr- perspective of how long this is going to take um, what numbers we should be looking at um, and 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 what i think uh, um, what i think was really nice about this is that it was very well informed about, by by political psychology, research, um, decision science research, uh, and at the same time, com- pretty much completely the opposite of what most governments, at least in Western Europe were doing. First of the and the most important part was in the anxious part. I mean, in half March, the government was still saying, you know, don't worry too much, right? And they weren't giving us particular details at all. Uh, something like, yeah, okay, we've picked up a couple of cases of COVID, but there was a real, really no serious testing at the time. So it was, it was really the opposite recommendation to the government and what they, what they were uh, pursuing up to that point. And that, that made it, I think, very powerful. And if I reflect back on that, that that talk and look at what the government is doing now, yeah, it looks a bit more like anxious optimism. but.
1: Yeah, currently the optimism is kind of gone, <laughs> and it's for just them, for the listeners from uh, <laughs> from other from other countries. The Dutch are we've we've just um, passed our second wave, and we're we're sliding into a third, uh, as it looks <laughs> like right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so other talks.
0: Stuart Soroka, I think that was the week after. It was super interesting talk. Um, really, already a mix of talking about COVID, but also talking about. Uh, but his, his work and, and primarily his, 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 his recent work on, 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 uh, on the negativity bias. And what I think was particularly interesting because I experienced this myself is that so on average people have sort of a, a, a preference for, for, for negative news for, because if, if the norm is positive, then for news to, to you know, to, to have an impact, it needs to be norm deviating, right? So it needs to be negative. But Stuart was saying, you know, what, what happens if we shift the norm? And the norm is shifting currently because, you know, the, it's still pretty much 2020 is, this, is the bad news year of, of, of the century. Um, and so with bad news being the norm, suddenly people, the norm deviating news is good news. And, you know, I look at the newspaper every day, <laughs> hoping to read some good news. Uh, well, <laughs> so how is that turning I, out? I, I'm totally, maybe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I'm totally living Stuart Soroka's prediction. And uh, I'm hoping he, he's turning this project into something, uh, some really nice uh, 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 publication. Uh, what
1: about you, uh, Bert? What, uh, yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the project. you know, obviously we've, especially, we've Western Europe and the Dutch, in particular, pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the United States, and it's not only Trump, but we've also obviously been paying attention to uh, COVID in uh, in the United States, and and Sharon Gadarian's uh, work on on COVID has 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 obviously been been uh, been very informative on this, uh, showing. Uh, relatively big uh, partisan differences in uh, in the, in the spring with uh, with with all sorts of compliance, uh, and they're not the only ones doing this, but they were definitely among the first to document this, and they've continuously been able to document this. And I think one of the interesting things about their project is that they what started as a first wave became like a multiple wave project. And, and, and I think it's turning into a book in the long run. And I think it's going to be very informative uh, in a way of, of following as a pandemic develops to, to have political scientists uh, in a very polarized country track how um, with With such different elite cues, right? The Republicans, and especially Trump uh, um, for a long period of time, uh, downplaying it or neglecting it or or uh, giving very cues. she should not wear masks. And on the other hand, the Democrats giving a different science and how people respond to that. I think that's that's obviously interesting for in terms of Covid, but also interesting in terms of broader political psychological phenomena that we're interesting in interested in. And that obviously also leads to you know <laughs> uh, uh, one of the the other questions that 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 I think is has this, that this pandemic has been showing us is that how easy or difficult it is to to do social scientific research in a fast moving environment. Yeah, um, we had yeah. our own levers. Right, you know, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, pass it to me
0: well <laughs> well, <laughs> where to start um, well, yeah, this is a story without an end yet, so maybe maybe in the end it won't be so much of a blooper but but obviously, I think, like many people, we were motivated to chip in and and, uh, and and you know contribute to, to giving advice on, on communication and and so we have a bit of a research line on on on, um, on, on tailoring communication to personality right so think about big five personality extroversion agreeableness neuroticism consensuousness, and um, uh, which one I remember openness and. Um, uh, so we were we designed a few messages to specifically tailor to agreeableness, openness, and uh, and and extroversion, and uh, and uh, and then we 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 found a, a research the goal of co- creating
1: com- compliance with government policies. Yeah, so
0: we were interested in increasing that ex- exactly, and then we found a research company we we won't name it here, but uh, who, who who would do the survey and uh, well. Yeah, without you know giving too many details, <laughs> a lot went wrong with the implementation of the um, of the survey. That that's one. It, it essentially went into the field before we said yes, uh, and uh, and then then it was actually in the field at a time that the treatments we had written were had become pretty irrelevant, right? So I think we one of the things we wrote is like, don't don't go on, on on weekend trips to your family. But when it was fielded, it was June. In June, I mean, hordes of Dutch tourists were already flocking to the Spanish beaches. So, I mean, this treatment had become irrelevant. And, well, we had meant to rewrite it, but, okay, so something went wrong there. And then, uh, okay, some stuff went wrong also with uh, with the, um, you know with the data uh, analysis initially. <laughs> that was that was just my fault, but uh, but yeah, it's also it's also we're trying to do fast science also in a period where we were all very. Um, uh, Much uh, time pressured pressured because uh, because of of families also uh, being at home, right? So it's uh, it's um, but yeah, that that shouldn't be an excuse. But uh, but definitely, this whole thing it makes me on the one hand, I think social science should be should be capable of of responding in, in in a pandemic. It should be capable of doing fast science. On the other hand, also see pretty big limitations and
1: um, uh, and maybe we should somehow prepare better for this the next time. Yeah, I think it's also at least, you know, maybe some other social scientists are maybe doing this more often. But I guess for us where we our research lines are not always so one on one tied to societal changes. It's not like we see societal change X. like we see f- deep fakes coming up, let's study them that, you know, I think that's not how how both our lines are developing. And and so we're also not so used to it. I think the pandemic, obviously, is a very unusual case, because you, 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 we had very limited time with 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 daycares and kids at home and daycare closed, kids at home. Um, But I think, you know, In the end, I think we've also learned, you know, it might be a little costly to say we've learned from something that has failed relatively uh, substantively. But on the other hand, it might also be something that if we never have done it, we would have also not had these experiences. I think if I look back on it, I think we could have probably been a little sharper in terms of evaluating whether or not we should go in the field with these treatments or, you know, maybe... That, that we could have probably pushed ourselves to be a little more self-critical. But, you know, on the other hand, to give ourselves some slack, we might have also, want, we're pretty happy that we were sort of done with the experimental design and let's just let the research company deal with it. And so there's pros and cons to it. But, yeah, I think the, the, the fastness of the, we should be able to answer social questions fast. But I do think we need to, to think seriously about the checks and balances within our research team, and that's not only about sort of the statistical analysis, but also about the design and the the implementation. And I think that's where we definitely missed some things. Yeah.
0: At the same time, I think one positive experience here for me, um, which has nothing to do with fast science, but is to think about your effect sizes. Mm in political science, there's n- there's not really a tradition of, of thinking systematically about effect sizes. In psychology, there's more of a tradition of that, though. But um, in this particular case, so in the end, we did find a m- very tiny effect of, of of one of the agreeableness messages. Um, and but what does it mean to find such a very small effect? One might say, "Well, this is effect is so small." You know, it doesn't really matter at the, se- at the same time you know if you if you would send that message to an entire population and and, 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 and you know you would do the multiplication you would find okay maybe a thousand people of the 17 million or so in the Netherlands our, our effect is actually larger than that but say it's just a thousand people a thousand people are affected by this and and they they start to in the sense that they comply more than they otherwise should have done. Then that could actually save another thousand people for, from getting corona, right? So it's 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 uh, and, and 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 maybe it would save ten people from you know from getting uh, getting into mm-hmm. the hospital or dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's very small, but it, it 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 still might be relevant in that sense.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I think we should also. You know, we're 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 writing up that that paper. I don't know if we're probably going to end up as a preprint on a server rather than a uh, yeah. that we go through trying to convince the journals about about mostly no findings but um, uh, yeah it's, it I think that's that's indeed a big takeaway that that, that we can do that we can take home more. It's like, what, what indeed are the implications of what, of what we're yeah. doing? And, you know, in that sense, the pandemic was a nice way to think about this because we actually had some more behavioral intentions rather than yeah. attitudes or something like that that we often study. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you know, after a while, the the anxiety decreased mm-hmm. a bit, of mm-hmm. course, and we had time to reflect upon other things in the lab too. And oh, we were also kind of sick of talking about Corona, to be honest. <laughs> so we started covering broader topics and one clear underlying topic. Although we, you know, we didn't really discuss it directly, but a lot of the talks had relevant relevant things to say about the American elections and how to understand them. And so let's let's talk a little bit about. Um, uh, what we learned uh, from those presentations.
1: Yes, uh, yes, guys, we've uh, we've been actually been very fortunate to have uh, some very interesting speakers on uh, on on political psychological explanations uh, of of some of the phenomena we see in American politics, but obviously also translate to other parts of the world. So, a couple of talks that that. Stand out, I think, is is uh, Chris Federico of the University of Minnesota, who is doing uh, work on collective narcissism, which is sort of the belief that your country deserves a special treatment, and and um, and that Chris showed is is positively related to to nationalism, and and um, this is part of a bigger project that that he is doing with with collaborators on the collective narcissism, and I think it's a it's a it 's a fascinating concept right that you you think you know, your your country is this the the unique country and and, and
0: the data weren 't limited at all to the united States no 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 it 's
1: so po- poland 's yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and you know i think uh i don 't know what the, I think a lot of Dutch people would also fall for collective narcissism uh, you know our former prime minister was proud of our huh. East Indian trading company, and yeah. you know we we 're a hey, we're a special country in the EU that deserves all sorts of uh, of special treatments, and uh, and and so I, yeah, it's a, I think it's a fascinating psychological concept that that um, that has as big implications for politics uh, related to narcissism, but probably also related to other outcomes. Uh, another timely talk we had was from Stephen Webster from the University of. Uh, Indiana, who just published his book on, uh, on on the role of anger in politics, and, and uh, done a lot of interesting studies on on the the extent to which politics elicit anger. And how that, in turn uh, motivates things like distrust in uh, in political elites and institutions, and that is uh, obviously not limited to the United States. But that is a uh, that the the um, Stephen's work is is focused on American politics. But you know this is a uh, a phenomena that we can translate to Western Europe uh, easily, and and has been uh, has been on our mind uh, obviously a lot because we're working also with Isabella, one of the PhD students, uh, on on trying to figure out what the cost of of political emotions are so it's been that's been really fun are some talks that that come to mind that you thought were that stood out I
0: I loved Ashley Jardina's talk Uh, she's from Duke University right Mm -hmm. and uh, she spoke uh just before or after the the American elections, and her topic is is, is the role of white identity in, in in politics. Pretty much focused on the United States, it's, and it was really nice how she so, how she shows that white identity appeals, influence politics in all kinds of different ways. That 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 you know they they set different norms, and uh, this was just, this was really good talk and, uh, and 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 very timely, of course. Uh, another. Um, speaker i was super excited to have is agneta Fischer. uh she's the dean of our our, of our faculty
1: but uh is not forced to say to per se say (laughs) this right now (laughs) no no (laughs) it's not up (laughs) for promotion well
0: i i'm hoping i still am at one point but (laughs) 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 um no, no. I mean, I think if no, let's not go in there. But um, but she's uh, more than a dean. She's she's an expert in in in, uh, in the emotion emotion science. psychologist and uh, and very interestingly, she's, she's she's gotten interested into politics. So, she, I mean, political science not uh, doing politics, but. Um, and so she gave a talk about uh, the relationship between populism and fear. And this is part of a much larger uh, project uh, um, that, that she's doing. And this was uh, uh, super interesting to see how, you know, someone with a background in, in emotion psychology is trying to, you know, enrich in the field uh, of, uh, of populism, which typically hasn't focused at all on, on, on emotions uh so on so yeah i mean those were the well there were there were many more exciting uh, talks but these were the talks that i think uh, were particularly relevant uh, you know if you think about uh, uh, the american elections which have obviously has dominated the, the sort of the election agenda this year although i think we do missed uh, uh, one particularly interesting election in new zealand uh, the ele- uh, yeah the uh, labor
1: the, landslide win just
0: just in the ardern but the, i think the first majority since they moved to a sort of mixed uh, electoral system which is which i think is is probably only happened like w- once or twice in the electoral history of this this you know sort of electoral system so that that's super interesting but uh, yeah i mean in an american presidential election year everything is pretty much uh, <laughs> all the other election
1: years is pretty much on a, on a different scale um, I'm, I'm actually friend i actually follow her on facebook just and under- yeah yeah because uh, some people mentioned that she had a that's that she uses the the social media channels in a kind of unique way of, of yeah. Of of directly speaking to to with her electorate and and it's kind of interesting. I'm not <laughs> listening to all of what yeah. she has to say, but but it is this sort of YouTube vlogger meets politician style, which mm. I don't see from a lot of other politician yeah. uh, politicians. And it comes across authentic. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I do I do like her her, her
0: communication style. Uh, <laughs> I was particularly amused by her. Uh, her um, that she said at um, the first time that that New Zealand was Corona free for two weeks or something. She said I made a little dance in my uh, in my house and then and then my daughter, which is a baby or is the son, I don't, actually don't know, uh, looked at me funny. <laughs> Yeah, so that, uh, but going back to the, the, the American elections, I mean, we promised to talk a little bit about our own work. I mean, we haven't been able to advertise it at all on our lap. Uh, uh, so, so now's the time. Pure altruism. Pure, now's the time for advertisement. Okay. Um, let's talk about the Journal of, of Politics publication. Um, what's the title? Uh, maybe that will be it. The, the Populist the, the <laughs> Appeal uh, and yes. the Establishment.
1: Uh, communication and personality Uh, and maybe a little history of of that that project is is that uh, you know what what might actually be when we didn't realize that the whole politics lab would be founded is in 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 the in the uh, the big um, the big uh, central hall of the of the Palmer house where uh, on the Sunday afternoon at the end of the the Midwest uh, Matthijs, and uh, Geist, and I were talking about populism, and, and you know maybe trying to see if there there would be some psychological correlates of populism, and um, that was uh, probably 2013 or 12, and 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 uh, ended with with a first paper where we have some. Relatively, um, we have some evidence that that from a few countries that those lower on agreeableness, uh, they they who are distrusting, cynical, tough-minded, um, indeed support uh, populist parties, factions more often. We had evidence from the United States from. Uh, Germany, so the Linke, and uh, the Netherlands, the Freedom Party, the, the United States, the Tea Party, sort of t- 2010, 2012 <laughs> Now this this was it's an interesting paper, and it's gotten gotten some attention in this uh, in this. I think in particular in the populism literature, it gets this sort of uh, this attention that maybe psychology also matters or personality, um, but. Well, we've we've been for a while been thinking that we you know we should probably do a follow up because uh, we could probably broaden the number of cases that we study but but also we we did we have a mechanism in that original paper that was published in 2016 in the European Journal of Political Research but we don't really test that with these correlational studies so in the past years we have been collecting as many sort of observational studies that we could find and these are all sort of public. Uh, available data sets from different countries ranging from uh, from from po- countries with right-wing populist parties such as Switzerland and uh, Denmark the freedom the, the Danish People's Party um, the Netherlands the freedom party um, UK with UKIP but also more a uh, 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 Um, countries with left-wing progressive uh, uh, parties with a popular signature, so uh, uh, Spain with Podemos and um, uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, and uh, in Germany with both the Linke and the Alternative for Deutschland. So we had a more diverse range of of countries so that we could test, do we see indeed that those lower on agreeableness, who are distrusting, cynical, tough-minded, are indeed more likely to vote for these populist politicians who portray the elites as self-centered, cynical, as Corrupt, and so we, we across these x number of countries and x number of samples, we do we we, we pretty consistently replicate that that uh, that pattern that we documented earlier, and then we did in uh, twenty sixteen already. We did a conjoint experiment in the United States. And so the, 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 to to test more of the mechanism of indeed politicians that portray an anti-establishment message also get more votes from those lower on agreeableness. And the beauty of a conjoined experiment is that we could vary the populist rhetoric, so portraying elites in Washington as self-centered, evil, and corrupt, or not. But we could also at the same time vary the ideological positions of these parties. So they could be pro or anti-establishment. It uh, could be pro or anti-immigration. They could be pro or uh, pro welfare redistribution or not, that so we could vary their background. So we have a, a bunch of different profiles that people see and we every time ask them like which politician would you like to vote for? And we indeed find that those lower on agreeableness they give more votes to uh, politicians with a anti-establishment message versus a pro-establishment message. So that's kind of a nice additional piece of evidence. That's the one route to populism support that, that is prominent in there. I think we have a nice second route to populism support that is a little bit hidden maybe also in the paper, but it's, it should pay, get attention, so pay attention, listener. Um, there, you know, there's obviously also been the idea that Populists are motivating. That's the turn to authoritarianism and this sort of older concept that authoritarian, those higher on authoritarianism prefer order and structure and dominance. And so what we find in our observational study, so across a couple of these countries where measures of authoritarianism are included. So we do use these child rearing values. So do you like your chil- children to be ordered and structured and obey you? Or can they be free and, and, and run around playfully? Um, and we find that actually it's mostly the right-wing signature, so right-wing parties that correlates, get more votes from, uh, from, from those higher on authoritarianism. And in the conjoined experiment, we, we actually have a nicer way of testing that second mechanism. So we find no evidence that authoritarianism moderates that reliance on that, on that, on that uh, anti-establishment message versus pro-establishment message, but the higher authoritarian give more votes to politicians with an anti-immigration agenda. And that I think gives nicely, gives a nice example of how there could how psychological traits can have different routes to support for politicians. So agreeableness works via the anti-establishment activation. Well, authoritarianism much more likely works via the activation of, of threat in sort of the ideological positions of anti-groups uh, that, that threaten you. I think it's a nice paper. Um, uh, that that um, should indeed get some attention.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's also important to note that um, populism is typically conceived as having two components, right? Mm. Uh, anti-establishment mm. and people-centrism. And we also show in particular that it's this anti-establishment aspect that works with agreeableness, and not so much as people-centrism. Pe- the people-centrism is people is, is typically the part that. Um, uh, uh that 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 populist parties are disliked for or or very much liked for maybe uh, uh because it, well it's the more to put it differently, it's the more controversial part because that's the part where they define what the people is and who isn't yeah. the common right good yes exactly the the white the white people or the the, the original people or or, or whatever uh, but it can also have a left-wing interpretation like the workers uh or 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 ordinary people versus bankers but so this 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 anti-establishment component that we've looked at is, uh is obviously a very important aspect of, 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 of American politics I mean it's pretty much every candidate except for Joe Biden in the last 20 years has said that they were uh, they were an, uh, that they were an anti-establishment candidate mm-hmm. I mean even Barack Obama promised to you know to uh, to bring a different perspective to Washington and mm-hmm. uh, John McCain did that uh, George Bush did that uh, no and needless to say Donald Trump did that Um yeah. So yeah, this anti-establishment attitude is is a, is an aspect of populism that uh, that is that also definitely has a different connotation than. Uh.
1: And I think it's also fair to say I think two things that are stand out in the paper. So I think we're realistic about the effect sizes there. You know, it's not it's not that if we know somebody's level of agreeableness that we can one on one predict what your probability your that yeah. that you whether or not you vote for a populist or not and. Um, the, the second um, thing that I think stands out in the paper is that and we're, we're, we don't try to characterize people as good or bad. I think we, we, you know, there's a lot of advantages in, in politics, but also outside of politics, to be a little lower on agreeableness. So, Being a little bit more distrustful and cynical about the intentions of others also means you might not get exploited so much. And uh, we know from other people's work that that those lower on agreeableness speak up in in political meetings. They protest more. These are normatively good things in democracy. So I think we should be careful of of putting too much normative implications on on what it means to be lower on agreeableness, which some people have criticized some of our earlier work on agreeableness and populism for.
0: Yeah, hey, uh, moving to some some other work. Maybe the the foundational paper uh, of the Hot <laughs> yeah. Politics Lab, yeah. because the paper is called Hold Hot Politics. Question uh, <laughs> mark. Uh, over time, we've questioned maybe whether we should rename the lab to Cool Politics Lab. But uh, <laughs> but now we actually do have some hot findings. <laughs> um, a paper published this year in the American political science review again by me, uh, Bert and uh, Matthijs Rodijn. Um, A four year saga of collecting physiological data with field in the lab settings. Um, We went to Lowlands, a music festival, uh, an evangelical rock festival. We went to a huge fair in the Netherlands, uh, a biker festival. And, and and we collected data. We were interested in in in, in we showed people left wing and right wing rhetoric in 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 terms of like really like like, like propaganda films. So we we made we made uh, um, video clips about say uh, with an anti immigration uh, perspective versus a pro immigration perspective, and uh, and so people were randomly exposed to either the left wing or the, the right wing story and we, we studied their physiological responses. Um, Bert, do you wanna dive into what we looked at specifically?
1: Um, yeah, sure, yeah, I've, I think uh, there's there's a, a set of expectations we had, and some of them, uh, they, they, they they were confirmed, uh, but others <laughs> Others were just <laughs> so, wrong.
0: Yeah, you
1: know, that's also the process of learning. Um, you know, we, we, we set out with a set of expectations. Uh, um, one was that, that, that what we find is that those who are um, have more extreme political positions, uh, which are measured before exposure to these, uh, to, these, to these political messages, they experience more physiological arousal, so more sweat secretion in the fingertips find not much evidence that it's those who are higher, more knowledgeable, which is an other argument that has been made in the literature that those who are more knowledgeable, they have more hot, their, their political concepts are hotter, but we find no evidence that, that knowledge is a uh, predictor, statistically significant predictor of, of this uh, increased physiological arousal. So that's when it comes to arousal, that's the first dimension. Um, the second dimension is, is the dimensional valence. valence. Um, which is uh, arousal has been used by, among others, like Stuart Soroka and Diana Mutz have, have studied, uh, have used physiological arousal in some of their their work. Um, valence is, is less often used in political science uh, in, to our reading. And, and um, we find that, that obviously once we, we, we know people's pre-treatment positions and and so we know what they think about immigration, climate change, redistribution and then they were randomly exposed to a left-wing progressive message or a right-wing conservative message. and We find that uh, the more you disagree with the message you've received, so being pro- immigration receiving an anti-immigration message or being anti-immigration receiving a pro-immigration message that evokes uh, activity of the corrugator muscle, that's the muscle just above your eyebrow. And it's been known to be activated uh, to to signal or experience negative effect. And so uh, that that fits within the motivated reasoning framework that that Things you disagree with evoke negative effect. You counter argue you would counter argue if we would extrapolate the theory further. Um, so I think that's that are that are interesting findings. Also a lot of things that we thought didn't work out. Uh, um, um, we find not much evidence that politics is funny. So we had among a subset of our participants we had the zygomaticus, which is a muscle known to be activated uh, in uh, by by positive effect, um, and. We don't really find that people that agree with messages have more activation of the Sigomaticus, which you would expect. Um, maybe we measured the Sigomaticus wrong. You know, men with beards are, which is common in the Netherlands at this point in time. <laughs> are hard to, our uh, hard to, uh, to 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 get the, the, you know, the muscle needs to be there. We we might have also not been completely skillful, especially sort of this lab in the fields where you are under a bit of time pressure. Do you have enough time to correctly place this on the on somewhere on the cheek? Well, above the eyebrow is pretty easy, and skin conductance is very easy to collect. But maybe politics isn't also funny, where we we can't per se reject or accept that. Based on this study, I think we should do more work on that. Um, And something other that I thought that was interesting, we had also post the the treatments. We asked people again about their political position, so we could look at some of the attitudinal change. Um, Our sample, which is relatively large and sufficiently powered to test what we do, uh, doesn't four hundred how many 450 people yeah 450 people um it still is not a lot enough to test whether or not people become more extreme or more moderate in re- in response to messages they agree or disagree with if you would expect that from the motivated reasoning literature so we look at absolute change and what we do see is that um these these physiological uh, like increased arousal uh, is a is a predictor of of, of 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 change which is interesting I we're not aware of work that really shows this and it it also holds controlling for some of the discrete emotions that we measured among a subsample which is which is interesting and I think the big puzzle that at least uh, Gijs and I are interested in at the moment one of the puzzles we're interested in is that we find not much evidence that the the physiological uh, measures correlate with what people say they experience which is a which is a big puzzle of how uh, it, it, this, this has been tempting to say, well, the one is more valid than the other physiology or, or self-reports, but we don't really think about it in that way. Uh, the, the big puzzle, I think, that, that we are thinking about is like how, what, when, is, when, are, when is this aligning? When do people experience physiological effects? And does that align with specific emotions or not? And that, that's a that, that, that our study doesn't speak to it, but we outline an agenda uh, and therefore, I hope you know that that the paper would also set inspire some other people to do some work on this. There's yeah. more findings and more null no findings in the paper, but these are some of them that we that I think are important. So yeah,
0: I I would summarize it as well. The two main takeaways from this study are first, if you want to study emotions, you can study them as 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 very. Uh, uh, cognitive and 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 as something very much preconscious, uh, effective and these aren't the same things. They, they shouldn't be the same things, and we should look at both of them in order to get a full understanding of the very complex uh, uh, concept of emotion, which is just much more than just uh, uh, just telling you someone you're angry. It's much more than that. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge. Uh, uh, um, um, Process with with, with, with uh, unconscious and and conscious aspects, and 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 secondly, what we've shown is that that you know that the effective that there are effective responses to politics that do actually seem to matter mm-hmm. somewhat for attitude formation, um, and so. Th- for 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 me at least, I guess for YouTuber, this was a bit of a vindication of the hot politics uh, project. So I'm, and we're super happy that this was accepted in in such a nice uh, journal. And so this is, but this is obviously not uh, an end point, but rather the beginning of a large research agenda, where we're we're further exploring these effective routes. And uh, and one particular small nice publication we just want to mention on the fly is uh, yikes. Um, Yikes, yeah, ex- are, are we disgusted by politicians uh, published in Politics and Life Science um, where we show that, uh, that people experience physiological disgust uh, when they see pictures of out-party politicians. And so the, with physiological disgust, I mean activation of the levator uh, uh, muscle that is just besides your nose. So people literally pull up their noses. Uh, when they see an out party politician and talking again about effect sizes. The effect size of watching a person vomiting is exactly the same as the effect size of someone watching an out party politician. Interesting footnote there as well is that if, if you tell people that the in party politician that of course we've, we've also shown them in party politicians, if that in-party politician has has committed a moral violation, like like taking bribes, then also you see almost the same effect, but then reversed. So it's the in-party that produces uh, the, the the physiological disgust. So again, this is this is uh, uh, this is entirely different than, than the hot politics paper because now we're you know we're talking about identity, about politicians, that, that, that none of that was in the hot politics paper um but again we show some some of the uh that that, that these 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 responses that you can clearly find on with self reports have an effective basis but well perhaps the most interesting finding of this paper is that the correlation between people who had this physiological disgust response and people who had self-reported disgust in response to seeing uh, the out-party politician. That correlation is zero. Um, so it really seems that 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 people differ in terms of which systems are activated, are working uh, in in sort of processing this this information. We can't yet explain this.
1: this well, what what I find interesting about it is that 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 in political science, this has the Tendency to maybe then turn into a discussion about which one should we use, the one or the other. But in psychology and neuroscience, this seems to be the discussion. This seems to be their fascination. Like what, what, what causes this concordance? Is there concordance? Like it, it, what I mean with concordance in a sense of alignment between the physiological and sort of more cognitive, emotional. Discuss- and you know, I, I, I personally think that is a fascinating discussion. And and I was surprised when I started reading a little bit more of the of the sort of neuroscience psychology work on this that was like, well, this is kind of the discussion they're having right now. Yeah. And, and they've been having for a long period of time. It's one of the fundamental discussions they have. So I, I hope we're not turning this into sort of a validity discussion of the measures, but it seems to be more theoretical discussion about You know, what what are emotions and and how do they what parts are we measuring with the different with the different measures we're using? And maybe they sometimes align and that might have different consequences when they're not aligning. And that's that's a fascinating component that that we outline in these both these studies. That's actually also part of the parallel that we twice see very limited correlations between what people say and what they physiologically experience and that for sure will
0: be an important uh, aspect of our research agenda in the next few years and i just want to welcome everyone who's listening and wants to you know um, exchange thoughts uh, with us on this to you know reach out and uh, we we would be happy to uh, uh, to discuss this and and work on this jointly hey but there's one more thing about this politics and life sciences publication that is interesting it was our first registered report uh, so for those of you unfamiliar with registered reports, registered reports are, uh, you essentially write the paper before collecting the data. So you, you know, write up your hypothesis, you write up how you construct your hypothesis or the theory, you write up your, your uh, 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 data analysis section how, uh, and how you're going to collect data, obviously. So it's even a step further than a pre-analysis plan and uh, because the registered report is also reviewed so it is accepted results blind and uh, and so this was a really interesting experience lots of things went wrong obviously for this being the sort of the the new next thing in this open science uh, uh, workflow Uh, but it has been a fascinating uh, uh, process for me how was this
1: for for you uh, Bert well I I agree it's 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 been I think it's the journal politics and life sciences should be applauded for also offering this uh, this format i think there's still uh, not a lot of journals that uh, that that offer this in in political science in communication and in psychology and they're they're growing numbers but i think a, a, a couple of things really stand out and maybe start with sort of the design phase uh, i remember the conversations we we had i think it was probably in spring 2019 when we're writing this if memory serves me well maybe it's even earlier but 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 um, and uh, we, we were the with pre-registration in general but with registered reports in particular uh, you you become so incredibly precise about what are the theoretical puzzle you want to address what hypothesis do you formulate and what is the design that fits with that and I think that's that's been a that I think that has made our conversations much more precise about what we're doing rather than sitting in an office or in a Zoom meeting about sort of speculating about things that could be interesting to study and what's the design. We're now really thinking through what's the hypothesis and does this design actually allow you. I think pretty
0: far into the process, we realized that, that the hypothesis we we had formulated weren't actually tested by <laughs> the analysis plan. Uh, yeah, i and And you know we might be stupid, but I actually yeah. think this happens to a lot of people oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean and it's it's uh, should we should be open about this so. yeah
1: I think I think that's that's I think the, the the biggest takeaway from the from the first state and and it also made us more selective in we're also only collecting the data we need to test our hypothesis, and that's nice because you're not sort of preparing for all sorts of additional comments or robustness checks that you anticipate it's like now this is the design. I um, think the other part that that we realize is that um, we wrote a very extensive stage one submission, and then we had to program the protocol. And I think we should have probably programmed the protocol once we, when we were writing the stage one submission because it was so detailed, but it was so much information that we also just made some human errors that because you know, somewhere on page 22, something was hidden about like block randomization that we in the end didn't implement. So you, I think going forward and this is obviously easier in Qualtrics when your design is easier than in a physiological study where the programming and all credits should actually be also be given to our co author Michael Holman who did a lot of the programming yeah. and should not be blamed for the mistakes but um yeah. uh, is it, it 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 I think what we should have done at that point once we're writing stage one we should have programmed the protocol as well and and that would have made sure that we have, then have everything on our mind, but now, you know, you send it out stage one, three months go out for revisions and then you have to program it. And yeah, and it, I think it was 35 pages or something with text. So at some point you miss something. And I think that that's one of the parts where the pre-analysis plan failed in sort of planning.
0: And a and, uh, lots of, by the way, lots of these experiences we had, uh, but we used them to sort of rewrite uh, our recommendations regarding how to write pre-analysis plans and registered reports. And if, you, if you're interested in that, you can find it on our website. Uh, um, yeah, we, we have specific recommendations and feel free to, um, uh, to use them or, or send an email if you have comments on it. Uh, because this is so much a work in, in, in process. I mean, it's great to, you know to be doing open science, but there's, there's just so many uh, uh, things we're all still figuring out. As to what is the uh, uh, the best way uh, the best way to go?
1: Yeah. So what I particularly like also about this registered report, we have this table in the main text, sort of deviations from the from the stage one registration. And uh, if if anything that has influenced me this year was the Nature Human Behaviour editorial titled "Tell It Like It Is." And I think you know, that they, 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 where they stimulate researchers to not tell the story that fits the data, but to actually tell the story that reflects the research process. And and for me, and I think for all three of us, getting that table one in is like, well, you know, here are our deviations. It's also the standard of what people want in registered reports, but it also shows like, here are the deviations, and we also discuss whether or not they're detrimental for the interpretation for, of our results. And I think that just it outlines... A way of transparency that that about the research process that you know we've we've had these ideas we forgot some of it some of it was just different because the data looked different some things were were uh, were analytical decisions and and here they are and you as reader can go to the paper and evaluate whether or not you believe our results and and i think that's that's the amount of transparency that that also helps the increase credibility of the of of science in general yeah Talk about deviations. I mean, I wrote
0: NHB Nature Human Behavior paper in <laughs> our in our discussion points here, but I actually wanted to talk about our Nature Human Behavior paper, which was accepted in nineteen, but officially uh, published in, in twenty twenty. Yeah. Um, there we we um, it's titled "Conservatives and Liberals Have Similar Physiological." Mm. Responses to threats, and it's a co-authored paper with uh, between Baird, me, and uh, uh, Vin Arsenault and Claire Goutro, and, uh, and 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 it's a it's a replication of uh, an existing uh, a paper uh, from 2008, Oxy et al, uh, where they show that that conservatives have have stronger um, physiological responses <laughs> to threats than liberals. It's 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 mostly skin conductance. Uh, uh, so it's arousal uh, differences. And, and, and in our paper, but there are now two or three other papers that show exactly the same, uh, we find absolutely no evidence <laughs> that this is the case. And, uh, and for me, this was personally a huge um, step forward on, say, the open science uh, uh, agenda. Uh, but, you know, Part of this we uh, was also sort of pre-analysis plan. Uh, some of it wasn't. Um, but the benefit of replication um, and, and, and to, to pinning down a priori, what you are going to show has for me been sort of an, an eye opener. Um, what was also an eye opener, I think, was the attitude of the original authors, in particular, Kevin Smith, about being super honest and, and transparent about what they had been doing and uh, and also very supportive, actually, <laughs> in, uh, in, in getting our work out. So uh, this is a big shout out for... Kevin. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think also um, it's also a big shout out to the other uh, to the other Kevin uh, Arsenault, uh, whom uh, has uh, I was was just tonight, uh, had a bit, bit of contact with him about the fir- I did my, my Marie Curie Global Fellowship, uh, a two year postdoctoral uh, um, project uh, where one year was with Finn in, in Philadelphia and the second year was back in Amsterdam and the one of the first evenings I was in Philadelphia we Finn and I went to uh, went out for dinner and we started to plan a little bit some of the physiological work we wanted to do and it turned out into a conversation about open science and about you know sort of this the end of the dinner, we we're like, you know what? We should probably commit to just pre-register everything we're going to do in the lab, and and that that commitment in in um, in September twenty seventeen has has really changed uh, the way that 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 I uh, do do my work nowadays, and I, th- I think that is also the decision to pre-register the replication. Uh, has been a consequence of that of that dinner conversation and and has has really helped to give it credibility with the immense amount of robustness checks we replicated there um, I think we 've both shied away a little bit from some of the other sort of more once we 're not doing replications we 're pre registering less robustness checks because they all need to be reported and um, but for the replication, it was an incredible strength to say you know if you want to salvage this idea that conservatives have more are more threat sensitive than liberals, does it matter if you subset it on sophistication? Does it matter if you subset it on race? Does it matter if you subset it on on gender, on age and and all these findings that we have in a very extensive appendix just show exactly the same pattern over and over again. And and, and yeah, I think I think the pre-registering has procedures there has been incredibly helpful. And and also in terms of specificity about the idea, I think only, and that's I think the other part that I think about both registered reports and pre-registration help is that your ideas in terms of replication or original, just become much sharper, and and so I think a lot of people write. I think you shouldn't do open science because you want to be part of what you think is maybe something that cool kids or just general the discipline expects you to do. I think you want to engage in things like replication and pre-registration because it makes your work better, yeah. and that's a that's an intrinsic motivation.
0: Absolutely.
1: Still, for me personally, the I mean, open science to me
0: isn't about the forms. It isn't about pinning down researchers, what a lot of people think. Like, oh, there is no more space for creativity or exploration. It's rather about honesty and transparency. Just by, you know, what hypothesis testing in your paper is just exploratory, and what is 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 uh, you know was was conceived prior to uh, doing the analysis. And I think, you know, it's such a simple distinction, but I think it makes a world of difference in, in how we write papers, and how we talk about papers, and how we talk on large, even about careers, right? So it's, um, for me, that that's, that's a huge eye opener that I can recommend everyone to. um,
1: Also, I think it's one of the few things we have as social, as scientists in the 21st century, where everybody can have an opinion about anything. And so I think we, we can bring, we can, we can, we can bring in facts, but they should be derived based on open and transparent procedures and, and because otherwise we're just if we're just telling stories yeah. then we're not doing that much different than other people that don't work at universities and just spread stories on social media or whatever at, din- at dinner parties so you know that that I think is also and there's been some work by Daniel Lakens that shows that 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 open and transparent workflows increased uh, credibility. And I think that's a, uh, you know, we've, we've done both have done work on populism. Uh, I think the critique of, of, of the academy and, and scientists in general uh, is something we, we we experience to some extent in Netherlands. It's much bigger in other countries. But if we want to prepare for some of these critiques, I think we should have a open and transparent uh, set of, of, of workflows.
0: All right, Bert. Yeah. Late. What are you uh, most excited about for twenty
1: <laughs> yeah, twenty? Um, um you know, I think I'm I'm most excited about about the fact that that there's some clear, like there's some big puzzles laying ahead of us that that I think we're not gonna solve in 2021. But I do wanna, uh, and I hope we can do some work to 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 figure out some of it. Um, and that's unrelated to specific papers, but. Know, trying to zoom in on the discussion of of what what is the role of effect in politics, but what actually is effect and what what are emotions in politics? I think that's a fascinating question that I I'd hope to work more on in twenty twenty one.
0: And I think we'll have more of that, even coming from the from the lab. I'm I'm really excited about uh, the work we're doing with Mike Homan yeah. about facial mimicry yeah. of politicians, which, well. Shall I say it already? It's maybe not facial mimicry, but, oops! Spoiler alert! Uh, spoiler alert. Um, exciting work with Isabella Rebasso on 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 um, how we can frame messages in such a way that they elicit anger. Um, exciting work coming up with uh, with us and Christian people on 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 trying to detect emotion in politician speeches. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, to uh, to see how this develops, and obviously the, the project we've been talking about. More or less, uh, a lot this uh, this this hour. The the, the the how do discrete emotions and physiology relate and can we predict? Who uh, 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 has which type of response? Um, there's, of course, that. That's the research part. Uh, but also, we will have a lot of uh, 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 podca- more podcasts, more videos, uh, live. Uh, you can also join us live every Friday, uh, almost every Friday, uh, from three to four Central European time. We are starting again in the new year on January 8th. We give Lelkes from the University of Pennsylvania. The week after that, we have Ursula uh, uh from the uh university of amsterdam and the week after that we have leor schmidt grotz i still have to work on the pronunciation mm-hmm. uh from the department of psychology in at the university of cambridge and at the end of that month that's 29th of january we have graduate friday so at the end of every month we have graduate fridays where phd students can present uh, this time we'll have tristan klingelhofer from um, John Hopkins Hopkins and uh, Lynn Andrea Fick from uh, uh, the the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Uh, And so if you're a grad student and you want to present in our lab, there are still some places later on in the schedule. I'm talking about May and June, uh, always the last Friday of uh, that month. So please contact in case you're interested to uh, to discuss there. Uh, We've got some people to thank.
1: Right. Yes. uh, Obviously, uh, Christian Pipal, who is uh, uh, on uh, uh, helping us uh, with uh, and setting up uh, all the the Zoom meetings, uh, and obviously uh, some sponsors. In my case, that is the Amsterdam School of Communication Research, Um,
0: and in my case, it's the European Research Council and the Amsterdam Institute for Social Science Research. And finally, I want to thank you, Bertz, my partner in crime, yeah. for having so much uh, fun with me and
1: uh, <laughs> and and having bought these excellent uh, beers. <laughs> <laughs> They're from the Goysen Brouwers, which is uh, only locally available in Hilversum. Uh, so um, if you don't know that, look it up on the map. Um, and also, we also I think we want to thank uh, you all. Like uh, this this year, we've we've broadened our our network uh, um, and and our. our our lab has been opener and uh, you know that is only fun to do if other people also have interest in that so we want to thank you Uh, please feel free to engage with us on uh, you know our work but also on the things you work on uh, the things uh, our students work on and uh, obviously uh, it would be fun if you attend uh, our lab sessions uh, and contribute to that so we hope to see more of you in the upcoming year 2021 which I think is how the cases in the Netherlands developed will have a lot more of these online versions <laughs> coming so that, that's a positive note to end <laughs> 2020 <laughs> with Jeez.